Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 23 today. going to ask the sound booth, since I don't have my clicker up here, to help me out and uh, click on to the next slide, if you will. In 1517, the same year that Martin Luther tacked those 95 theses up on to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, the famous painter Raphael began painting Christ's transfiguration. When he died three years later, at the age of 37 in 1520, the painting wasn't finished. But Raphael had completed it enough for us to understand it. The painting depicts, as you can see, Jesus transfigured on the mount with Peter, James, and John. In the same painting at the bottom, Raphael shows the very next scene in Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel that we're going to be looking at. And that is the the disciples, the other nine disciples, failing to cast out and heal the boy. Now, I don't know if Raphael was a believer or not. I don't even know if he was a student of the scriptures. But what he captures well here is what Matthew wants us to see, the context that Matthew wants us to see. Spiritual mountaintops reside right next to spiritual valleys. Great spiritual highs many times are followed by great spiritual lows. Great faithfulness one moment and great faithlessness the next moment. Look with me at this starting in verse 14 of our text today. There God's word says, And when they, that is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Father God, I pray that you will open your word to us this morning. Lord, these words are powerless unless you come and minister to our hearts. 
unless you take the promise in Scripture that when it is read and, and exegeted well, that you will change hearts, that you will change minds, that you will change lives, that you will save. We pray for all that today. In Jesus' name, amen. In John Bunyan's classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, I hope, I hope you have all read this. That would be something, if you have not read, that you should pick up immediately. Pilgrim's Progress, that great allegory of the Christian life. Pilgrim comes to faith, and then he immediately enters, if you remember, Palace Beautiful, where there he has a time of rest, where there he has a time of refreshment. But then, directly leading from Palace Beautiful, he leaves and he goes into two valleys. The Valley of Humiliation, where he is, he is reminded of his past sins. And then he moves right from there into the Valley of the Shadow of Death, where the, where the actual entryway, the gate to hell is. And he is severely tempted there. What Paul Bunyan wrote about, what Raphael has depicted... What the disciples experience here in our text is a very common Christian experience. It's a normal Christian experience. To go from the valley, to go from the mountain into the valley. To go from spiritual highs to spiritual lows. To go from from great faith to into a valley where you are doubting. We exit Palace Beautiful only to enter the valley of the shadow of death many times. Faith-building experiences reside right next to faith-challenging experiences. In verse 1 through 8, we see an amazing mountaintop. An amazing mountaintop. Jesus had just taken Peter, James, and John up into the mountain. He'd left the other nine down there, but he'd taken them up to the mountain, if you remember, in those first eight verses. And he had shown them his divine glory. It says there in verse 2, he shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. In other words, what he was doing is he was giving them a glimpse of who he really is. He was, if you will, pulling back the scrim and showing his divine glory. A glimpse of his holiness, of his power, of his glory. They were given, those three disciples were given perhaps the, one of the greatest faith-building experiences of all time. They were given what you and I many times ask for. I don't think I'm the only one in the room who at one time or another in my Christian experience says, God, show me something. Give me a sign. Let me hear your voice. Answer this prayer directly. We ask for these things. We ask for God to do something that will give us faith, don't we? In other words, we ask for the mountaintop experience that will never keep me from descending into the valley. That's what we want, right? This side of glory. I don't want to go down into the valley. Give me something that will never cause me ever to go into the valley again. At least that's what we all think we need, right? 
And sometimes God actually condescends to us. Isn't he amazing? That, he, that is a condescension. That is just a grace, a love that he does sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes he does. I remember one time years ago, I was standing after uh, church and, and just greeting people, and this woman came up to me and started telling me about a, an issue in her life. And I, the, those of you who know me know I'm not like this, but I just said, let's pray, and I began to pray with her. And I found myself praying a very specific prayer with a very specific answer in a very specific time frame. I don't usually do that. I, I give God a very wide berth because he's God and I'm not. But I just found myself doing that. And wouldn't you know it, the very next week that woman came and told me that it was answered in that way, in that time frame. He didn't have to do that. That's not something that, that the creature can demand of the creator. That's totally out of line, if you will. But I, was, I prayed that, and he condescended and answered in that way. And it was a great faith-building experience for me, and it was a great faith-building experience for this woman, I'm sure. We were, if you will, on the mountaintop at that time, in the very presence of God. But as our text shows us here, that kind of faith that is built on sight just doesn't last. We think it will. We think in our flesh, we think, if he shows me this, I'll, I'll, I'll have faith forever. It didn't last for Adam in the garden. It didn't last for the people once Moses went up on Mount Sinai. It didn't last for the Israelites in the 40 years as they were in the very presence of God by pillar of fire. Their faith didn't last. They actually saw a manifestation of God's glory. It didn't last for the disciples up to this point. I mean, you have to put this in context, right? They had seen a lot of amazing miracles. Him walking on the water. Him feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. Him touching arms and, and healing shriveled arms coming back. People that have never walked, walking. People that never spoke, speaking. People never heard, hearing. John's Gospel says if, if all of Jesus' miracles were put in the book, put somewhere, the books could not contain them. He did this all the time, and the disciples saw it. Yet, that sight wasn't enough to give them this faith that never went into the valley. We foolishly think that if we experience something, our faith will increase. But very simply... That's not scripturally true. The scriptures tell us over and over again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And what? The conviction of things not seen. That's faith. It's the very definition of faith. And then all of chapter 11, he goes in and, and proves that throughout through the history of the, of the people of God. This side of glory, we walk by faith, not by sight. That's what we do. But we think just the opposite, don't we? We can read it in Scripture. We can hear it from the pulpit. But we just don't believe it. Our flesh doesn't believe it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Instead of trusting the unseen, we prefer the tangible fruits of desire. When you have made your eye the instrument of impurity, you cannot see God with it. Brothers and sisters, if we make our eyes the instruments of faith, we actually lose sight of God. The movie The Sixth Sense was a huge box office hit years and years ago. Made over a quarter of a billion dollars. But what's really interesting about the revenue that that movie brought in is that most of the revenue was brought in by people seeing the movie a second and a third time. The film's surprise ending succeeds because... Most people base their view of reality on what they see. While this film requires you to focus on what you're not seeing. Even though it's right there. We think if we could only see or experience or see a sign or a miracle, if only we could see God, that our faith would increase. That's not true. The truth is, the Christian experience is much like watching that movie, The Sixth Sense. Our eyes make us look at the wrong things. They make us value the wrong things. Our sight actually distracts us from what we should be looking at. Sight does not lead to faith. That's what Matthew wants us to see here. From For after that mountaintop experience, we see that they enter a valley of faithlessness. We see that. Come right down and they enter this valley of faithlessness. Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain with Jesus and back into the crowds in verse 14 here. And the Father approaches them and asks Jesus for help because the other nine disciples could not heal his son. And we learn from the parallel account in Mark 9 that this son was an epileptic, that he was mute, and that he was possessed by an evil spirit. Apparently the other nine had tried various things, various ways, various formulas, or to stand back everybody, we're with Jesus, we've got this. And they could not heal this boy. This is... This is curious. It should be curious to us because just uh, four, four chapters earlier, he sent those same 12 out and they, they healed, and they cast out demons, and they raised the dead. They were successful. What had happened between then and now? 
Why couldn't they do the same thing? Well, Jesus gives us the answer several times here. Very simply, very obviously. Faithlessness. It says in verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation. A little later when the disciples come to ask him pointedly why we couldn't do it, because of your little faith. As soon as the Father tells Jesus about their failure, first words out of Jesus' mouth, oh, faithless and twisted generation. I mean, that little section there actually is, is one of the few sections where we see Jesus' kind of exasperation. Not sinful, but we see his humanity coming through. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. There's our first cue. Jesus was saying that faith is not a force. Faith is not a force. Jesus calls them faithless and twisted. That Greek word, word there, twisted, means is frequently used to describe pottery that is malshapen, deformed. Jesus was saying to his disciples, that their understanding of faith had become twisted, deformed, misshapen. They had started to think that faith was something other than trusting in him, but a force to be wielded. C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, if you know this book, it's a book where uh, C.S. Lewis writes of a, of a greater demon writing letters to a lesser demon on the art of temptation. It's very fascinating to read. In the seventh letter, the greater demon writes this to the lesser demon. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is in effect a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to a belief in God. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshipping what he vaguely calls a force while denying the existence of God, then the end of the war is in sight. Isn't that insightful? As is all of our proclivity, the disciples have forgotten the object and source of their faith, Jesus Christ, and turned into these materialist magicians. As David Platt wrote, the disciples had likely begun to look at their ministry as mechanical, being dependent on their own ability instead of God. That's how we all twist our faith. We begin to think of of it as a force, as something we can manipulate and wield. We act like that child in the commercial, that famous commercial now, that little child dressed up as Darth Vader trying to make things move in his home, right? It's how we begin to start thinking of faith. But there's another way we twist faith too. In verse 19, the disciples come and ask Jesus privately, why couldn't we do this? And he says, well... It's actually because of your little faith. It's not just twisted, but it's also little. We can twist faith and begin to believe it as a quantitative, 
But it's not. Faith is not quantitative. Faith is not quantitative. Now this, when we read these things in scripture, your little faith, our mind instantly goes to quantity, doesn't it? How much do I have? Oh, he's saying I have little. My glass doesn't have enough faith. Oh, but faith is not quantitative. The whole word faith and deliverance ministries are based on this type of belief in scripture. That if you have enough faith, you can do things. And by the way, if, if you don't have enough faith, that's not why, you, why you're healed. That's not why these things aren't going on. Because you don't have enough faith. They're not happening. If you have enough faith, they will happen. And just look at the fruit of that. Destruction. The temptation we all have is to start thinking about faith quantitatively. Or like the disciples in, in Luke 17, they come to Jesus and they actually ask him. They are like us. They come to Jesus and actually ask him. They say, Jesus, increase our faith. They, they're asking, fill my cup. Make it fuller so that I can do something. And Jesus uses the same metaphor he uses here. Look at verse 20. He answers in Luke, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. It's not about the amount of faith you have, brothers and sisters. It's about where your faith is rooted. The disciples did not fail because they did not have enough faith They failed because they forgot the object of their faith. The greatest faith in the world, if it has the wrong object, has no power. Isn't that what Yahweh was telling his people over and over and over again in the Old Testament through the prophets? When he was telling them about, there's this famous excursus in in Isaiah 44, where he he talks to them and he says, listen, you cut down a tree and you cut it in half and half of that you use to build a fire to bake bread and you eat warm and you and warm yourself by the fire. In the other half, you take it and you carve an idol and you worship it. You put your trust in it. And he's, he's just putting it, laying it out there and saying, same tree. Why are you putting your trust in this half? That's silly. It's the same stuff that bakes your bread. Same tree, same wood, yet they put their faith, their hope, their trust in that wooden object. Brothers and sisters, you do not need a great amount of faith to please God. But you need a mustard seed dependence in Christ. To do the impossible. You need the right object. Faith, even when it's timid, meek, and shaky, if it is in a God, it is in a God who is consistent, immovable, unshakable, unchangeable, and all-powerful. And that makes all the difference in the world. Who your object of your faith is in. 
That gives us a great exhale, doesn't it? I mean, just think about it. If, if it all depends on how much faith we have, doesn't that just create anxiety? Doesn't that just create valleys? But if our faith is in the object of Jesus Christ, the all-powerful, never-changing, all-loving, all-caring God, you can exhale. Our faith is not dependent on how much or how little, how hard we work or how much we do, not on the how, but on the who. On the brink of World War II, King George VI of England addressed the British Commonwealth on New Year's Eve. England was filled with despondency and uncertainty, and the king's own body was racked with cancer. Unaware of his own physical condition, he uttered these memorable words. I said to the man at the gate of the new year, give me a light that I might walk safely into the unknown. And he said this to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. It should be to you safer than the light and better than the unknown. Church, we know how true this is, right? We know it's about the who and not the how. But our spirit knows that that's true, but our flesh wars against that. Our flesh wants proof. Holocaust survivor Tori Ten- Ten- Corey Tenboom wrote this, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future into the hands of a known God. That brings us all back to where we started today, doesn't it? We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus knows this is hard. He knows this is hard. Jesus had just left his nine disciples down and gone up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And when they were not with Jesus, when they were out of sight of Jesus, their faith waned. Their faith twisted and they began to depend on themselves. I think that's what's behind Jesus' exasperation in verse 17. How long am I to be with you? Why did he say that? He knows we're tempted to live by sight. How long can I be with you? It's, you have to have faith when I'm not here. Do you remember what he said in, in the Gospel of John after his resurrection? After he appeared to the, to the disciples in the upper room and had, had Thomas put his hands in his side and his, and his hands and feet He said, because you have seen me, you have faith. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have faith. He knows this is hard. He prayed for us in the upper room. It's so hard. Living by faith and not sight is difficult. But that's what we are called to do, brothers and sisters. We're called to put our hand out into the darkness and into the hand of the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God and continue to walk. We're called to be willing to be led by Christ into the unknown. That's living by faith. 
We're called to be willing to be led by Christ into, into and through the difficulties of life. And when we're in those difficulties, to look to Jesus first. To look to Jesus first. That's living by faith. I bet you didn't notice this, and I don't blame you if you didn't. But if you look, we have a verse 20 and a verse 22, and we have no verse 21. Verse 21 has been taken out. Verse 21 says, This type can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Now, it's taken out for good reason. A lot of the early manuscripts do not have that in. So our Bible keeps getting more accurate, not less, as we find more manuscripts. So the translators of the ESV decided to take that out, not thinking it's in the original. But it is in the original in Mark. And Mark has that in his parallel account. Now, why do you think Jesus would say, prayer, only prayer? Do you think he's, he's giving us a formula? Do you think he's saying, okay, just do this and this demon will come out? Because if you do, that's kind of what the disciples, those nine disciples were thinking. And the demon didn't come out. What is prayer, brothers and sisters? Prayer is a conscious look to Jesus for dependence and help. Prayer is depending on Jesus. So what Jesus is saying there is, living by faith means you're, look to Jesus first. Look to him. Be willing to be led by Christ when you don't know where your next step will land. Perhaps Chuck Swindoll said it best when he said, living by faith means believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. Isn't that great? And that is what the disciples were struggling with in verses 22 and 23. Here Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem. He is telling them that he will be taken and beaten and suffer and die and raise it to life again. And that made no sense to them. Peter, back in chapter 16, said, God forbid, and tried to stop him. Here, if you look, it says they were greatly distressed. They were, they were confused. They were grieved. And we understand that. They, Jesus is their, not only their rabbi, but their friend. He's been with them for three years, 24-7. They certainly did not want him to be killed. And I don't think that last part of what Jesus said even registered in their minds. Raised the dead? The whole thing just didn't make sense to them. Why is he doing this? That's, the gospel does not make sense. Think about it. 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, the gospel is foolishness to the Jews and uh, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It's doesn't make sense to anybody that Jesus being God and man, that's foolish. That he came to earth out of sheer mercy 
to offer forgiveness for our sins and eternal life. That's madness. That he offered his body as a substitute for ours, saying, I will take the penalty for your sin. I will take the death penalty for your sin. That's ridiculous. That he was raised back to life three days later to conquer sin and death. That just doesn't make sense. Unless you're willing to put your hand in Jesus's and walk into the unknown. And belief in advance will only make sense in reverse. The gospel only makes sense as we put our trust in Christ and walk forward. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We ask you, Heavenly Father, to apply it to our lives. Help us to bow to the authority that is in your word and to live by it, Lord. It's so hard for us. And help us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you in our life. It's in your Son's name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.